Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast, volume 11, issue 534. And today we're going to talk about Maniac Mansion. Joining me, Leon Cox, in this issue, we have Jesse Fuchs. Hello. Welcome back. It's been too long. Also, John Salmon. Hello. Sadly, we've been robbed of uh, the prison princess, Brian Edwards, due to uh, his uh, his important work. Um, he was going to particularly bring context from the time of playing the NES version as a as an American kid of the, uh, I guess, early 90s. He probably played it with his brother. So it's a shame we won't get to hear about that. But uh, tap him up online if you're interested uh, on Twitter, maybe, and ask him about his Maniac Mansion experiences. But we'll do the best we can with what we have. What is Maniac Mansion, you may be asking, because it's pretty old. And I would say somewhat famous, somewhat well-known, but it was never a massive commercial success. It is a point-and-click adventure game, an early point-and-click adventure game, so a graphic adventure, but we were still in the era of text adventures at this point, although Sierra was doing stuff with visuals as well. We'll get more into the context of that. Uh, it is also, it's a teen comedy horror, I suppose, and it's from Lucasfilm Games, crucially. According to Moby Games, the Edison Mansion has always been a creepy old house on the edge of town. There have been rumours of strange experiments going on and of odd creatures living among the Edison family. There is even a story that a meteorite once crashed near the home nearly 20 years ago. More immediately, a girl named Sandy has gone missing from the local high school and her boyfriend Dave swears that he saw Dr. Fred abducting her. Dave knows that he cannot do it alone and he will need help from two other students if he has any hope of infiltrating the mansion and rescuing Sandy. Spoiler alert, if you don't want to know what happens in this 35-year-old game and experience it for yourself, there are ways of doing that, plenty of ways actually, which we'll talk about but uh, we'll talk about the endings, the multiple endings that this game has. We'll start off with, as as usual, our histories for context of the game. When did we play it? Which versions and how? <laughs> Jesse. I did not play this game uh, back in the day because I had a Atari 800. I don't know if it came out on the Atari. It but didn't, no. Yeah. Which is interesting because yes. LucasArts starts really dedicated to the Atari. I know. The first couple of games are, you know, ported from there. And I think Gilbert starts as he's porting um, Coronis Rift from Atari to Commodore. So, but yeah, I did not play this. I did play some of Zach McCracken on a bootleg Amiga disc. Yeah. And actually didn't play any of the other LucasArts games until much later when I, you know, saw it as a gap to be filled in and went back and... Uh, played the first Monkey Island and played Loom, which I, is probably my favorite of them. Uh, by, Maybe next uh, year, Jesse. Yeah, just by say Moriarty. We did Sprint Eat before. Um, but yeah, this is very much something I'm, I'm, I'm mostly coming to from the sort of academic or like, you know, here's a thing to know about standpoint. Yeah. So you've played it through what, on an emulation or on a Yeah, I played it through on Amiga emulation after uh-huh. uh, false starting on the Vita. I guess we can get to that. But right, that oh, it's, yeah, it's hidden yeah. within Day of the Tentacle. Yes. Uh, and I thought that'd be the most convenient way to play it. Mm. It's, and it's the IBM version, but it turns out that... And we'll get into sort of the, you know, the, the friction of point and click and, and why this game might not be the top of my recommendation list if you're just looking to have a good time in 2022. Um, sure. But on the, 
Um, you know, I noticed in the instruction manual there are hotkeys for the verbs. So you can, I don't know if either of you fellas oh. found this, but, you know, nope. quirt, asdefug, you know, ZXCVB uh, correspond to the, the verbs on the screen. So instead of having to bring your cursor Jockeying up the and cursor. down, up and down yeah. you can just keep that bit of the instruction manual open in the PDF uh, and have it next to it so you can cross-reference, and that is actually less friction. Uh, I might be revealing that this was not my favorite game at this point, but we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> Although there are many things about it I like, but like just sure. that core kind of like trudge. Um, you know, that, yeah. But I played it basically because the, uh, the, the Commodore version, I watched a walkthrough of the Commodore version, and I do think that that's kind of the most interesting looking and the most impressive just mm. because yeah know, it's on the commodore but yeah i figured if i'm going to play through this thing uh a little less pausing a little less loading times and a little more yeah uh, graphics so and the amiga version i think looks very nice and is fairly true to you know form yeah for sure john i'm thinking you maybe didn't have any previous context for maniac mansion i think maybe you just put yourself down on on our big spreadsheet as a curious potential participant um a kind of half yes and half no to that okay so i have got a slightly unusual history with some of these adventure games where they were things that i remember because a lot of the early lucasfilm games that are mentioned like um this obviously and then the the follow-up couple of monkey islands and full throttle uh all the all the ones that are you know very famous now they're all quite early in my life, so the majority of them, a Maniac Mansion, I think, came out when I was literally a baby, like yeah. one or two, and then by the time you get to like full throttle, I'm still only about ten. Mm. So I do remember at least one or two friends, and like a friend of my dad's, who I always thought it was weird that he played video games, had some of these adventure games on their computers in like the early nineties, and I do remember a little bit sort of being about seven or eight and like fiddling about with uh maybe one of the first couple of monkey island games and finding them very inscrutable at that point when they started re-releasing a bunch of these games on more current systems i think the first ones that i really remember were the like re-released remastered versions of the first two monkey island games on i'm guessing the xbox 360 ps3 in about mm -hmm. 2009 maybe yeah like at that point, I was like, I'm going to go back to these things that I sort of remember being an annoyance when I was a very little child. When I was playing the Day of the Tentacle remaster the most recent time, 18 months ago, there's a point in that where you just turn a computer on and there's Maniac Mansion. I'm sure it's a very famous thing that everybody knows about that they've kept throughout the whole load of the releases. Yep. And at that point, I was like, oh, Maniac Mansion's in here. I, I'd like to play this. But also, I was in the middle of playing Day of the Tentacle, and it's a really, like, it's a really jarring shift when you go from that, I believe that game is probably the remastered Day of the Tentacle, probably like 2016 or 2017 at this point. It's quite new. It's Yeah, although the original Day of the Tentacle was only sort of eight like, years after yeah. the, uh, six, six years maybe after Maniac Mansion. Yeah. So it's based on, it's based on a yeah. game that's somewhat... You can you can switch between the graphics with you know the touchscreen button, so it might you know if yes. you were using the current ones, then be a, mm. a massive shift. If you're using the old ones, it'd still be. I mean, it is funny that seven years later you include this other game you made in yeah. your game as an Easter egg, yeah. like that. Yeah, that's Moore's Law in action, sure. 
Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So I, I do have this very distinct memory of like stumbling into Maniac Mansion thinking this seems amazingly cool. Like I need to play this, but right in the middle of playing the Death, the Tentacle Remaster that had considerably different graphics and controls and like buttons yeah. to switch between like look and walk and main it's starting maniac mansion and playing like maybe half an hour of it it felt really really archaic so i kind yes. of put it down i was like i'll come back to this at some point and then i guess some point has ended up being yeah i guess it was on the spreadsheet and it was one that i did mark as either pr- presumably amber for like mm-hmm. i have interest in this and it was one of those weird ones this year, beginning of it, that I think I've described about four times already on this that podcast this year of like the schedule came around. I looked at some of the games I was on and thought, why? That's a weird one that's come out of left field. Like I, I don't Consider remember. Carefully yeah, when well, you mark up the spreadsheet. I assume I do when I go down the spreadsheet, but maybe I put Maniac Mansion on there like four years ago or something, thinking I'd like yeah, to talk happens. about adventure games and completely forgot about it. So, yeah, with that, everything recently has been kind of a little bit mad, um, hectic. I've got, uh, like, a lot of personal stuff going on. So I I would have really liked to have done, like, a real proper sit down and try and Puzzle play the out. game. Yeah. yeah, like, really seriously. But I found it a little bit too much when I started, yeah. like, a week or week, 10 days ago. And I, I saw a list that you posted somewhere of all the ways that you can kind of back yourself into corners. Yeah. And I was like... Yeah, if it was if it was a real like Monkey Island situation where they yeah. specifically took the death out of this and took the like the game breaking ways out of this, I'm, I'd be a little bit more keen. But I ended up I did a bunch of stuff and then ended up sort of deferring to a very interestingly written guide that kind of covers all the bases. So I mean that in itself was quite a, a fun experience, just following the guide and looking at all the different yeah. character stuff in it. So, yeah. but yeah, that's my actual probably first ever full playthrough has only been in the last week or so yeah my memory of maniac mansion does go back to the commodore 64 version but sadly i never got to play it so my my love of lucasfilm games begins late 1985 i had recently got my atari 800 xl which i've discussed before on these podcasts was not a big hit in this country but i wasn't really aware of the whole kind of the market situation. I was a 13 year old kid or whatever, just got a paper round and I had the money to buy a computer off my mum's mail order catalog. And the Commodore 64 was a hundred pounds more. So I got the, the one that I could afford, which was the Atari. And I didn't really realize that 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 meant for the next five years of using that machine, I would be scrabbling around for the few games that got released over here. Maybe not, maybe it's not quite that bad, but a lot of the big, big name games did not make it onto the uh, the Atari 800 but it was still a, a beautiful machine albeit with horrendous cassette loading times but I absolutely loved it and I remember buying a, a my first ever issue of Zap 64 magazine because at that point I was just interested in at that point I said like it hasn't changed I'm now 50 <laughs> I'm still interested in all the video games um and it had reviews of the Commodore 64 conversions of Coronis Rift and Ballblazer in it. Coronis Rift was disc only on the Atari, but I did manage to get uh, Rescue on Fractalus, which was the previous game based on the same engine, and Ballblazer for my Atari fairly soon after that. And I was absolutely blown away by these games. 
uh, so my my first exposure to Maniac Mansion was in a, a slightly later issue of Zap 64. Um, and I knew it was Commodore 64, but not Atari, which was a little bit upsetting as as they had led with, with Atari 800 before. But I think, yeah, this was a result of Ron Gilbert just being a more of a Commodore 64 expert and him leading that project. Although David Fox was one of the main programmers on it and he'd been lead on the Atari on previous uh, games. So uh, I guess it was partly a commercial concern with the Commodore 64 being more po popular around the world. Anyway, so I saw this screenshot of Maniac Mansion. It's in the one of the upstairs corridors with the statue. And I saw that it was multiple kids. And I saw these big, obviously they look very low res, blocky and simplistic now, but I saw these big characters and I was reminded a bit of... Um, I think this is in the right order, but I was reminded a bit of, uh, is it Don Priestley who made the Trapdoor games and the other the other games on the spectrum with these big, big, bold characters rather than the kind of usual tiny sprites that you were used to. Um, and I was just, yeah, I was fascinated by the idea of playing it. But my first LucasArts uh, adventure that I played was on the Amiga, which was the Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade point and clicker, which I really liked a lot. Then I picked up Zach McCracken in hindsight, obviously then went on to the Monkey Islands and yada, yada, yada. But I never actually got around to playing Maniac Mansion um, myself until, yeah, recently. Um, the Day of the Tentacle Remastered, which was a PS Plus game, features the entire game within it. It even has its own save states and uh, save menu and stuff like that, which I think is fantastic. So all you need to do is make a little save state in your Day of the Tentacle save and you've got full unfettered access to the complete uh, Maniac Mansion and you can play it as long as you want. But actually what I did was, because I also have this game on, uh, I think it's on Amazon Prime Games. I think they've they've been giving away some of these uh, as uh, as their monthly uh, suite to Prime customers. Um, I think Zach McCracken was this month at the time of recording. But yeah, some months ago they gave away Maniac Mansion. I think it's the same as the, the GOG and Steam release. And uh, so I actually played it on there on my, on my pc with a walkthrough using mouse to point and click um and then after after that uh once the pressure was off then i went over to the the ps4 version as it is on 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 the um on the day of the tentacle and sort of from there i want no, knowing that i'd got the game in the bag i then started trying to play it more naturally and sort of thinking how would i have played this back in the day so i have got some experience of kind of trying to puzzle my my way through albeit i know the solutions to some of the puzzles uh, but i'm notoriously good at forgetting the solutions to puzzles so actually i did manage to you know get stuck and die and all those things despite having just recently completed the game so um yeah here we are um lucasfilm games made it as we've already said and published it as well i think they previously worked with activision as a publisher old old activision um maybe some others as well uh, uh, epics i think epics. i don't know if this was with oh epics, though. activision in the uk i think maybe in europe oh, yeah. and epics in america that makes sense uh and the nes version and probably the famicom version as well was released by jalico the japanese arcade and console company anyway it was uh it was developed over two years although a large large chunk of that was of course developing the engine in which the game and then subsequent games would be made scum yeah named uh, named for the game that we're talking about and the game itself maniac mansion debuted at the 87 consumer electronics show in chicago initially released for the c64 and the apple II, 
which is an even kind of clunkier looking version. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. I didn't even look at that. That yeah, yeah. That sounds terrifying. Uh, so yeah, designed by Ron Gilbert with Gary Winnick, and uh, Gary Winnick is the the sole artist on the game, pretty much. I think. So yeah, the game came out on October fifth, nineteen eighty seven, almost thirty five years ago, for the C sixty four and the Apple II. Uh, yeah, so feelies is a term that we normally associate with Infocom. We've covered one Infocom game in in the past, and they were notorious for having all this great stuff in the box. Lucasfilm didn't quite do that, but you did get uh, one or two items, Jesse. Uh... Yeah, you get a map. Yeah, I think it was basically just this, not map, a uh, big Bolden board, basically, from the high That's school. It. Kind of a diegetic, a uh, bunch of things that are hints, a bunch of red herrings. It's a little like a less Flavor ambitious. Flavor text. Yeah, version of the newspaper in something like Witness. Uh, yeah. Which, again, like, I do wonder, we'll get to it, but like, how much influence there are, because this is a very innovative game, and they're definitely, most of the problems with it are them getting over their skis ambition-wise. Right. Uh, but it does make me wonder how much there are some precedents they may or may not have looked at. Uh, and mm. and I they talk about Sierra as their kind of foil, and I can yeah. definitely see why, but... but they're clearly better than, like, or, you know, like it's easy to kind of pick on Sierra and be like, well, we saw that we didn't want to play guess the noun. So we can't. Yeah. Yeah. With. Yeah. Uh, but Infocom, I haven't heard them mention. And, you know, by 1987, no. they're dying, but they're still like, I would rather play plundered hearts than this game. Like, mm. in <laughs> like they're both good, but yeah. Um, and I do wonder how much they were thinking about uh, lessons from those. Talking about the context of the of the adventure game market, we're also at the almost the exact same time as uh, the Rainbird adventures, aren't we? The Magnetic Scrolls, mm. Porn, and things like that. So, so there were people still really trying to push the text parser situation, but Ron Gilbert was already frustrated with with the the limitations and the the, the fact that you are playing guess the parser rather than playing the game, solving the puzzle kind of thing. Yeah, it's all part of sort of the approach of like how, I mean, again, not to, uh, I'll keep this tangent short, but, you know, Infocom is interesting because Cornerstone destroyed them and just, they shot themselves in the balls, like, and that was that, right. uh, which leaves open the question of like, could they have survived and made it out of the text adventure age into, mm. you know, if, if they hadn't done something like that, Uh and I look at Maniac Mansion along with the Rainbird games, like uh, just for the American listeners, you said the pawn, which may have been heard as something else. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, Deja Vu and the ICOM games, maybe you'll talk about slightly uh, right. Cinemaware, which is not exactly, it's yeah. different, but is in the same, like, how do we solve this problem? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I, I find this game like I, I get, you know, as, as probably most people listening to this have heard me say before, I teach a, a, a class at NYU on computer games in the 80s. Um, and at the end of the semester, I have students rate all the games they played on fun and interesting. Yeah. Uh, just to keep it, you know, and, and I think this actually, you know, students who have played many Mansion seem to like it, but this is definitely a game I find really interesting and yeah. not particularly fun. Or right. Uh, yes, and I'm looking at, uh, I was looking up what came in the box, so I, I naturally landed on an eBay sale for the original Commodore 64 version. Ah, uh, uh, yeah. And it's currently priced at US dollars, $1,499.99, which is approximately 1,272 
great British pounds. So if you are a collector, I price. hope you've already hope you've already collected this. <laughs> Plus three hundred and forty dollars import charges if you buy yeah. it in the UK. Oh yeah, good, and fifty three and sixty three dollars postage. Jesus. Yes, okay. So, so best part another four hundred dollars. Basically, two grand uh, will get you a Commodore sixty four version. A P, the PC I noticed, uh, I saw, I saw an, uh, a listing for a PC copy, which was considerably cheaper. Uh, but I also noticed that you can buy the good old games version, which just simply runs in Scum VM for a uh, currently on sale for one dollar forty nine cents or something like that. So yeah. uh, you take. You- you, t- you take your pick on that. Uh, well, yeah, download um, Dare the Tentacle Remastered, which you yeah. may or may not have on Game Pass right now. Yeah, Play exactly. about 15 minutes of it, and then you're in Maniac Mansion. Also true. Those are both... I mean, I know the the, uh, the Dare the Tentacle one. The, the, the GOG one is also the IBM version, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's... I think that's fine. It looks fine. I do think that if you, you know... If you're gonna do it, maybe maybe think about the Amiga or the Commodore 64, uh, just because either it's gonna look real nice or kind of yeah, you know, sort of there's a, a purity and a, a primal nature to that Commodore 64 version. Definitely, uh, yeah. Uh, I believe the the Steam and good old games versions include both the uh, original and enhanced versions, which were originally released in uh, on PC March 12, 1988. That is the the original is 160 by 200 pixels and the enhanced version, get this, December 31st, 1989 is 320 by 200 pixels. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, that um, goes up to, I guess, I guess that's VGA. I always get these things yeah. confused. But right, this yeah. is like when Sierra remastered all their like King's Quest now with, yeah, more pixels. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Famicom NES versions, uh, more than one, in fact, arrived initially in Japan, June 1988, and then in North America, not until September 1990, and then in Europe, October 1992. So Maniac Mansion, by this point, was already five years old when it arrived in uh, Europe on the uh, on the NES, which, as we've discussed before, wasn't a, a huge big deal at all in, in the UK, but did have more supporters out there on uh, in the on the continent and scandinavian places like that mikhail has a uh, fond memories of his his dutch nes uh, but the game was ported actually twice to the nes one version made in america and the other was actually made by jalico in japan the two versions hmm. look very different and was also one of the very few nes games to be translated into spanish uh, as you would expect even with this relatively tame game lust Notwithstanding, Nintendo demanded, insisted that multiple things were changed for uh, for their sensibilities, especially back at that time when they were known for being especially puritanical. Uh, the uh, language, for example, uh, the meteor is going to be pissed, changed to the meteor is going to be mad. The game Kill Thrill in the arcade was changed to simply Tuna. And... Uh, <laughs> sure. For a good time, Call Edna 3444 was changed to simply Call Edna 3444. Um, but that actually brings up, um, or I should say that you can actually play the uncensored NES version pre-Nintendo's meddling, I believe it's out there, or possibly it's been reverse engineered to be uncensored. Anyway, you can play that via emulation if you wish. Uh, but there's also an example that Ron Gilbert talks about of uh, censorship during development which was that uh he was uh he and 
and the rest of the team were insistent that it was going to have the line, don't be a shithead in it. Um, and Lucas, well, not not George Lucas himself, presumably, but a, I guess an exec there. Yeah, producer. Steve Arnold. Steve Arnold said, point, kinda, yeah. why do you need to do that? That's, you know, it's just it's just gratuitous kind of thing. Yeah. And then and then they 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 thought about it and they realized they didn't have to do it but then Ron says as a, almost as a kind of protest he changed that uh, he changed the s bomb to a to the to something daft and absurd so as to kind of make a point but actually it's ended up being quite memorable and sticking yeah it's also like the third or fourth line in the game i mean that was the odd thing was that mm. if you have the characters swear in the third or fourth line and then it never mm. happens again and it sets a tone yeah yeah and and yeah there is a very um i mean this is again an incredibly ambitious game uh that they really you know when you hear him talking postmortems because he's a very funny guy gives him a lot yeah. of good material to just talk about like how far over their skis they got and why it has so many dead ends and you know yeah. dead man walking conditions was not because they thought they were sadistic it's just nope. uh it was it was oversight it was the naivety as yeah. a programming issue basically. absolutely yeah yes they had one tester uh <laughs> who he jokingly refers to as uh i remember his first name was tim i don't remember his second name of course it's tim schaefer um probably his first job there i think testing maniac mansion certainly one of them and uh and yeah so they had one play tester and the people working on the game and of course Again, I, I know we give this context a lot of times, but I realise, and I realise that many of our listeners aren't that much younger than, than us, but some are, and it was completely normal and acceptable to have games that were released broken and never fixed back in back in these days, and dead ends and sudden deaths were just all part of the course, games that couldn't be completed or games that were very difficult to complete. It was normal, it was accepted you know, it might put you off your next purchase, but it wouldn't be like there wouldn't be class action lawsuits or anything like that in most cases. Right. They wouldn't know where to send the death threat. Um, yeah. I I <laughs> think it was a little more nuanced than that. And it might be a, a issue mm. of America, for, you know, that I mean, if you're if you're just banging two cassette tapes together for warmth, like in the UK. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you'll put up <laughs> a lot of things. Uh, but in, in the like in CGW and like uh, quest busters and people writing about adventure games, this was definitely a critique that would go back and forth. And is this sure. fair or unfair? They definitely had much different standards for what was considered fair and unfair. And yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly using the, the save States, you know, it, it, I think, you know, there's usually a distinction between the sort of instant death and dead man walking issue of yeah. like, well, yeah. you should be saving constantly, but you, yes, you can't be expected to keep an unlimited number of save States because you only have 12 yeah. K for that, whatever. Right. So, <laughs> yes, but I think it's that, yeah, I mean, Leisure Suit Larry, which is around the same year, is the first Sierra game that actually has playtesting because the guy who made hmm. it decided he wanted it playtested and just did his own thing. Like, right. like, Sierra definitely didn't care about that. Infocom had a pretty extensive, you know, QA uh, playtesting infrastructure that was very concerned sure. with both, you know, glitchiness and fairness. Yet, when we played Trinity, there were still dead man walking thing like uh you know it's it's 
it's an interesting like there were definitely people dealing with that other types of games like pirates which is also 1987 yeah. are in some way dealing with you know that here's a game where you can't die essentially mm. and it's not exactly a puzzle game but like how can we make an adventure game uh and even maniac mansion did not really start as a point and click adventure it was more the co-op puzzle thing yeah like they didn't even know what genre to make it for quite a while into development um so they say yes but that's that was sort of the core interest and i think it's just when you try to make a, a puzzle game uh they're very brittle creatures yeah just to uh, complete the the releases, we had those Amiga and ST conversions, July 1989. Really not much to choose between them because there's so little audio in this game that the normal differences between those two systems uh, and, and the resolutions don't particularly become apart, but the, the, the musical tunes uh, sound better on the Amiga. But other than that, um, let's also hear from our first correspondent, which is who is Sage and Onion Knight from the forum. LucasArts Adventure Games were the first games I really loved as a child, and when I idly clicked Use Computer on Day of the Tentacle, my six or so year old self thought he'd uncovered a secret that nobody in the world had ever seen. Obviously this wasn't true, but Maniac Mansion has retained an air of mystery and spookiness for me ever since, not least because it's kind of the black sheep of the LucasArts canon, not as punishingly unforgiving as a Sierra adventure, but certainly more merciless than the LucasArts games that would follow. If I remember right, there are certain character combos that make the game unwinnable. When I was playing the House Benevento section of Resident Evil Village, my mind jumped back to those memories of jumping out of my skin at the sight of an Edson family member, chasing me out of a room I'd innocently stumbled into. I've tried this game a few times over the years, including trying to get uh, trying the unofficial remaster cooked up by the adventure game studio community. And yet, even in an age of ubiquitous YouTube playthroughs, there are still sections of the game and of that creepy old mansion that I've never seen. The very simple but beautifully coloured pixel art remains enigmatic in my imagination, and I'm happy to keep it that way. Reviews-wise, back in the day, Ace Magazine, Advanced Computer Entertainment, gave it an 820 out of 1,000. <laughs> That's what they did. I love them. That Zap64 magazine review that I mentioned, I saw, was uh, 93%. It was uh, it was disc only. It took up both sides of a, uh, a big old floppy, um, five and a quarter inch floppy, as they were. Uh, the One Magazine gave it 83%. I think that might have been the 16-bit versions. Commodore User, 8 out of 10. Amiga Format, less infused, 73% for whatever reason. The Games Machine, also a multi-format, 76%. And Mean Machines, so this must be the NES version, gave it 89%. User Reviews Today, on good old games, it has a 4.5 out of 5. And Steam has a very positive from a modest 116 folks. Sales-wise, I can find absolutely no data. Who knows? Um, I don't think... Uh, they, they, they often talk about how, although these games are very, you know, they were well-reviewed well and fondly remembered, none of them were particularly big hits. Um, but I don't think too many of them upset George by actually losing money. On the uh, sales, I don't, I don't know actual sales figures, but one thing that's worth pointing out and tying again to Infocom is that they, the Scum engine, like Infocom's, you know, Zill engine, because it was a scripting language, uh, basically their own object-oriented 
you know, language for mm. making their games made it extremely easy to port to other machines. And yeah. that, you know, that, that, that was something Infogom was trying to do and failed to do was figure out a graphic mm. version yeah. that they could spit out like that. Um, and I would not be surprised if the Nintendo version outsold the computer game versions yeah. just because of, like, I think the Nintendo version of King's Quest V, which looks awful, outsold mm. the DOS. Just the scale was different. Yeah, right. yeah. So that makes sense. I think this game did well in the sense that it was easy to port. Mm. It kept selling in back catalog for years. Um, again, kind of like an Infocom game, right? And it's sort of you know, not like this is yeah, not not Zork, but I don't know, but yeah, suspended mm. or something. One of those that yeah, just kind of kept selling. So I think and and Labyrinth was a real dud that they did lose money on. Right. So I think this did have something to do with encouraging them to see this as a, you know, a way to go. Back to Maniac Mansion. Scenario, script, characters. Uh, I guess I guess one of the things that might surprise players, I don't know if it did you, John, coming to this after the Monkey Islands and the subsequent games is how little script there actually is in Maniac Mansion. Uh, yeah, um, I... I thought there'd be more like interactions between the characters specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I kind of assumed that when you initially get to pick three characters that they'd, there would be more like cooperative puzzles and things with them and more like you could Not just so much. I, I expected there to be like a talk to verb along the bottom and you could actually chat to <laughs> chat to each other, which would be no. kind of like interesting with this many people to be able to have unique dialogue between them all. Um, I think this is jumping forwards a little bit. Yes, that did get me, but it didn't get me as much as the fact that there is very, very little sound in any of this. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll come so, back yes. to the audio, but yeah, you, no you, you are right. the The audio is almost almost non-existent. But let's yeah, let's say that I was kind of surprised by the sparseness in multiple areas all at the same time. But it, it sure. kind of it's almost like a charm that very quickly grows on you, though. Yeah, you don't need to have the uh, the sound up to play this game, apart from on a couple of uh, key scenes. Uh, the blurb from the game's release on Steam and GOG, for example, says, Quick, Dr. Fred's kidnapped Sandy, and he's about to start the experiment. Dave and his friends have come to rescue Sandy before she donates her brains to Dr. Fred. And you are the brains behind their efforts to solve the many mysteries of Maniac Mansion. What really happened when that meteor landed 20 years ago? How did it change Dr. Fred, Nurse Edna and Weird Ed? Was he Weird Ed before the meteor landed, I guess? What is the uh, a green tentacle and how do you feed it? Why is there a chainsaw in the kitchen? Why is there a nuclear reactor in the basement? Actually in the swimming pool, I think. How does Razor get her hair to stand up like that? And why does Dr. Fred keep going, <laughs> Explore room after room, collect weird stuff, laugh out loud, feel a little spooky. Choose your own reckless rescue trio from seven unlikely volunteers. Five exciting ways to unravel the mystery. Hundreds of hilarious ways to guess wrong. No typing ever. Point and click to select characters, objects and actions. I actually wanted to mention from Sage Plus Onion Knight's post. I actually agree that the game... in a weird way, given how kind of graphically simplistic it is and how fundamentally unthreatening it is, the 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 fact that the characters kind of do suddenly start randomly or seemingly 
walking around and can catch you and throw you in the dungeon. It really unsettles me. And it's it, it's kind of a follow-up to uh, an experience, which, again, I think I've mentioned in podcast past, but I, I know is 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 famous among those who it affected. But the, the alien in Rescue on Fractalus, the, the shock of seeing that for the first time genuinely sent me flying out of my chair. And yeah, I, I actually twit, uh, tweeted Dave, David Fox about it and he responded. And uh, it, it seems to be his light. You know, he, he's a pretty old guy now, but he, he loves hearing. Uh, he genuinely seems to love hearing about people who remember the, the, the Rescue on Fractalus experience. Um, and yeah, for me, it was Christmas Day 1985, literally sent my chair flying. And yeah, so it's like I like that in the same way as we often remember things that scared us as kids that were a little bit out of context and a little bit, uh, yeah, things within otherwise safish environments that that freaked us out. The this this game, yeah, I, you know, it's not it's not a survival horror, but it does have a <laughs> slightly creepy accent to it. Yeah, they definitely kind of lean forwards with it as well. Um, there's a couple of points I think very specifically um, probably created right at the beginning of the game that let you know what's going on. Like the, you come into the house, the first door that you come to is the kitchen. You go into the kitchen and is very likely immediately that Edna is in the kitchen standing mm. there. So you walk yeah. forward and she just immediately charges at you. And that can happen within a couple of minutes of starting the game. Even if you kind of fumble around trying to get in, that's, very it's likely to tutorial. be yeah <laughs> right. it's like you're gonna get yeah. stuck in the dungeon you initially haven't got a way to get out of it so mm. now it's also going to happen because about two or three minutes into playing the game when you're probably also messing about in the kitchen with your second character after the first one got captured ed comes down to get something out of the fridge and he chucks your second character into the dungeon which i guess is kind of good because you need two of them to get out of the dungeon you do yeah so first yeah. co-op puzzle really yes so yeah. it does kind of it leads pretty strongly with the these kind of horrific looking blue people with yeah. uh like extremely large chins and who move at you very quickly are probably going to get you both in the first like five minutes it's genuinely disconcerting and it it is and the faces when they're sort of staring at the camera as well aren't yeah. a couple of them like yeah. And you don't know why necessarily because it is not tied. To, it's tied to a literal timer, right? Which, yeah. As opposed to uh, triggered by your actions, which is something that I think they change in, in later games. And yeah, yeah. It becomes conventional. I mean, you can even, again, look at Infocom games like Ballyhoo is the first one that kind of does that. And that's a real shift. Uh, but there's the fact that a, if you're making a, a, a horror game, one good way to do that, like with Eternal Darkness, is to change uh, formats or, or, you know, break break the rules of the game you think you're playing. And there's nothing about this that establishes it as a real-time game. From mm. the, like, it's, you're moving, but you don't really think, you think of it as essentially turn-based of, like... Uh, you know, oh, when I go here or whatever, but no, no, the, these things, yeah. if you, if you just kind of let it sit there, the cutscenes will happen, uh, you will lose, uh, and, but also the scrolling, um, you know, one thing they really want to take advantage of is the fact that Commodore 64 is actually much better than, uh, IBM or Apple II, uh, mm. at, at scrolling, right? That King's Quest screens didn't scroll, they were whatever, you know, you go to the next screen, mm. um, 
And so using that as like a reveal, as you know, this horrifying reveal in the first three minutes or whatever, really feels like a statement of intent of realizing like the, the uh, not, I mean, at this, at, we did the Prince of Persia episode with Jordan Mechner, and I think at its best, you could you could compare this game to Mechner, you know, the, the lack of text you were saying, which is basically mm. like, it's on a Commodore 64, like that's the big jump really, right, between Commodore 64 and like the Amiga is that when CinemaWare is making games for Amiga, you can write as much text as you want. Um, like King of Chicago has scene cards mm. that may or may not get drawn. And the guy just kept writing them up and doesn't even know if some of them are ever picked because their mm. numbers don't match up or whatever. Didn't matter. You have unlimited space for text, essentially. Mm -hmm. Commodore 64, no. Like, you put in more conversation, you're cutting Too many something. bytes. Yeah. 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 Uh, and like Prince of Persia managed to do an incredible amount with even less uh yeah this game is incredibly impressive in in kind of how much it 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 gets right that dramatic this the scrolling i didn't really even think of that when i was seeing it but mm. yeah that's kind of a genius move that i'm sure has been used in plenty of games since well yeah the and the the fact that the game reveals that it is on a timer so you can be interrupted i think is both yeah it's both disconcerting and kind of can be frustrating but it also gives a sense that a lot of even modern games don't have which is that you're not in control you're you're to to a yeah. certain extent th events are going to happen whether you're whether you're playing or doing what you need to do or not and in fact looking up game facts for for this uh, or just general online questions there are still people asking you know people are, are playing this game out of curiosity and whether it's within day of the tentacle or whatever and there I've, I've seen people asking saying so if i just stand there in the first screen will the game run out like um it, it's actually it, it it's not true because it will there, there there is a certain point where the cutscenes will have played but you can still you still have agency but you don't know that so it, it by showing you these cut and by the way i think this is one of the first games in history that actually has cutscenes that are referred to as cutscenes. oh they uh, invented by the, the word in yeah. the script it's like yeah. literally in the code it's cutscene. Yeah space blah 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 as yeah uh, because that means save the state of the game right here so that yeah. however we interrupt it we can go back to exactly where it was so that makes this if no for no other reason although as we've heard there are already plenty but that makes this a, a hugely significant game in the history of, of video games development it in, oh, yeah. know, it has cutscenes in it um Influences on the game uh, include Creepshow, which uh, has uh, the the tentacle landing, uh, not tentacle, the meteor landing and influencing the when the film. It's uh, it's a farmer played by Stephen King himself, isn't it? I think. But this um, is Creepshow, the anthology thing, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Little Shop of Horrors is an influence. There's a man-eating plant. Uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show with the kind of the the general setup, um, and yeah, Sierra's King's Quest. Um, which was a text adventure, albeit one that had animated graphics. I'm always very, always very, very much want to stress the, again for our younger listeners that um, it's actually it, it becomes less clear what was a graphic adventure, what was a text adventure, what was a point and click adventure as we get further and further away from the time because text adventures after a very brief amount of time got graphics, but that didn't make that so we called them graphic adventures but they weren't always animated and they were really just text adventures that had pictures 
and then we got animated graphics in in text adventures and then we got interactive animated graphics which we call point and click adventures for the most part um but yeah as as jesse will attest there are kind of more even more variations among that especially when you start to bring in things like cinema way of games and, and things like that right and with this even the earliest sierra games which were basically text adventures with graphics mm. up top were mm. different than the some of the later ones in that if you if you typed you know pick up a wrench and you saw a wrench on the screen and you could identify it as a wrench mm. uh then the wrench would no longer be on the screen like there there, there was an yeah. interactive component as opposed yeah, to the right. text adventure like yes. the scott adams ones i think added graphics later but yeah. that was like illustrations in a kid's book, which is great, but weren't integrated. And King's Quest mm. was, I mean, it was very interactive. And a lot of what people enjoyed was the very many ways you could die in those games, which is a mm -hmm. kind of Easter egg uh, that if you don't have more gentle ones. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it really was the foil. Uh, like Ron Gilbert at the GDC uh, postmortem uh, I don't think it was for Maniac Mansion. I think it was just a Lucasfilm because it was a group thing with like Noah Falsi and all that. But he recalls inviting the Sierra people over to Skywalker Ranch for a game of softball and that the Sierra people won and he still seemed bitter about it. I mean, hmm. humorously, but like, like they were <laughs> definitely who he was setting himself against because they were clearly the AAA, like, like King's Quest is incredibly flashy and impressive, but it had the guess the noun issue that if you um yeah. you know look at the big ad for maniac mansion zach mccracken like a third of the copy text is just beating on typing as bad uh and like now yeah. we have point and click um so yeah it's it's um it's an influence in kind of a, a right a, a, not a negative way but like this mm. is our competition that we are going to beat so those seven characters, I wouldn't say there's actually much to distinguish them in terms because there's so little dialogue or or, or text. Uh, you've got the the images of them. I suspect there was more in the box, uh, maybe uh, on that bulletin board thing to give you an idea of actually what these characters were about a bit more. But when you're choosing your three from seven on the title screen, there's really nothing to aid you um, as such, other than the fact that, say, I mean, Dave, Dave is, is a given. He is the main character. Uh, Luke, look, he uh, loosely modelled on Ron Gilbert. He said himself, based on the clothes he wore at the time. But he's kind of your <laughs> your, your bog standard everyman. You can tell that Bernard Bernard Bernoulli is probably a nerd in the classic archetype because he has glasses and isn't handsome, um, capable of dissembling complex electronics, but suffering from overwhelming cowardice, which means that he can do some things but can't do others which I guess is, is what follows through. He can fix stuff, fix a radio. Um, does he fix the telephone as well? Maybe maybe yeah, more than one character does. can fix a telephone. He's kind of essential. I've seen a few people saying, is it even possible to beat the game without Bernard? I don't know if it is. Um, it certainly I is, but his... So I played with... When I, I was picking, I just kind of picked... I picked Bernard because I'd been... Yeah, obviously he is a main character in Day of the Tentacle, so I was like, oh, I know Bernard. Yeah, there's that continuity as well. Yeah, and then I picked Razor as well because I was mm -hmm. like, these two look like they are the most polar opposites of this whole thing. Right. And if there is going to be some sort of like skill set thing, they might be an interesting combination. And it actually turned out that yeah, they were 
having the two of them was quite cool because I got yeah. to see two very different endings. Whereas if you have anybody else but Bernard, you can technically do two different endings, but they are basically two endings along the same theme. Uh-huh. I think there's there may be... Oh, okay, off the top of my head. So there's seven of them. There's two characters who can't do anything, who can't achieve an ending <laughs> on their own. Amazing. <laughs> Dave and somebody else. And then there's two characters who can do... Bernard has his own separate ending that only he can do. I think Razor and the other musician can do a slightly different variation. Or they do the same... I think the same ending that's... So basically it comes down to at the end you need different ways to get rid of Purple Tentacle. And Razor and Sid do it in the same way. Um, I think t- one of the others does something slightly different, and the, the last one also does something slightly different, but they kind of amount to being very similar to each other. Bernard's is the one that is like massively different from all the others, sort of. I, I think young people might, might want to Google uh, Eddie Dezine, uh, or Dezen, uh, who you might remember from Greece, and uh, uh. he played Mandark in Dexter's Laboratory, which I think might be, I don't know, but it sounds huh. familiar to younger people. But it is amazing how much the nerd archetype is this one guy. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, there's other Actually, people, but yeah, when you look up, you're like, oh, that that's the nerd. And yeah, uh, Bernard, straight up Eddie Dezen guy. And I realized, sorry, I, I, I was pronouncing, me and John pronouncing it the English way there, but yes, he's American, so it's Bernard, right? Not sure. Bernard. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, Razor... You'd think he's an Anglophile. You... Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> Razor's a fascinating one. So a citation needed on this. Uh, she is a oh, female God. punk rocker, talented on many instruments. IMDB Trivia says, the character of Razor was based on singer-songwriter Tori Amos, who at the time was an unknown, a friend of one of the graphic designers. Amos was the front woman of a hair metal band called Why Can't Tori Read? Razor's hair and outfit are identical to the one Amos is wearing on the cover of the album Why Can't Tori Read? Additionally, one potential plotline in the game has Razor playing classical music on a grand piano, Amos's instrument of choice. I want to believe. Yeah, like you can say it. Th- those things all line up, whether or yeah. not they are actually the case. Yeah. When she was being designed is another thing. Indeed. Right. The, the the cold water is that Ron Gilbert does specifically say that she was based on Ray, a girlfriend of, uh, I forget, uh, Gary Winnix or, or someone uh-huh. at the time. So unless Tori Amos yeah. went by Ray, then that yeah. is contradicted. Also, the, yes. the Why Can't Tori Read album came out in 88. So, But she could have been around on certainly the L.A. Mm-hmm. scene. It, it, it's a tempting... Uh, yeah. My theory is that she was influenced by Maniac Mansion, and that's where she got her first yeah. book from. That did not work I liked out it. great. <laughs> uh, I did. Yeah. Uh, I did go and listen to the. I will say this: it got me to, for the first time in the thirty years I've known about it, uh, listen to Why Can't Tori Read on Spotify, and uh, yeah. pretty good. Like if you forget Tori Amos, like mm. holds up next to Stacy Q or Tina Marie or your mm. other favorite Chuck Eddy Mall eighties girl disco uh, yeah yeah i wasn't aware of her before her kind of solo breakout success um yeah we'll check that out it's it, no i mean she uh tried to to uh, destroy all evidence of it for a right time because it was an yeah. embarrassing juvenilia thing but but uh, it, it, you know at this point post vaporwave you know it's all good 
juvenalia is important. I think, yeah, I understand why artists want to bury it, but I think sometimes you should uh, just accept that's who you were. Uh, Wendy is based uh, based on a Lucasfilm accountant named Wendy. Um, I did have a quick look on online to see if I could work out the second name. There are some Lucasfilm employees still with the name of Wendy, may or may not be the same ones. But uh, in the game, she's an aspiring novelist with a talent for writing, which I guess helps with there's a couple of puzzles to do with manuscripts and things. But I, I don't see why you'd specifically need her. Uh, I don't think any of the characters of the remaining three or four that we're going to mention here are particularly filled out, are they? They're just kind of archetypes, aren't they? Like, they're all just very stereotypical. Mm. This is such and such. Like, I'm especially Jeff Woody. I mean, this Surfing is this dude. is just Bacoli from Fast Times, right? Okay, right. Like, exactly. Yeah. I haven't seen a lot of these uh, a lot of these movies, so I'm I'm a bit yeah, a bit dumb to the references. Hey, I mean, the most obscure one for me is that I, as my conspiracy theory, is that uh, Sid is Johnny Slash from the. Uh, American sitcom Square Pegs, which only uh-huh. people my age might remember, but was Sarah Jessica Parker's uh, debut and is a beloved oh, okay. cult show with a theme song by the waitresses. And uh-huh. is, I've, I've rewatched. There's uh, an episode where Father Guido Sarducci comes in to perform an exorcism of, of a Sorry, kid who's addicted just, to Pac-Man. Did you just use a racial slur there? It's unlikely. Father Guido Sarducci? <laughs> Guido? It, it's a name. Isn't Guido It's a just- name. A I thought name? that was an insult. No, it's a name. It's uh, it's like I it's mean, like so it's Dick. Yeah, it's like the Italian version of Guy. Trying <laughs> to think of other first names that are also insults. Uh, <laughs> Dick's the low hanging fruit. Uh, anyway, there's a few. Um, he is a look. This is a tangent on a tangent on a tangent. Point is, is Square Pegs, interesting cult show that I would be mm. completely unsurprised if the new wave rocker character of Johnny Slash, who looks exactly like this and is also kind of in that funny ah, new way. Like, we, it's a punk rock, but we're kind of scared of punk rock, so it's new weight. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and has, like, you know, the Egon Spengler curl. Um, so I guess his use in the game is mainly around the recording, the tape recording, and yeah. the, the convincing the tentacle to start a band guess, kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, which is exactly what Razor can also do. Yeah, exactly. But like their ending yeah. ends up being the same. Yeah, right. Uh, and finally, we have Michael F. Stop, S-T-O-P-P-E, a photographer. Uh, and, I'm, and again, I'm struggling to think how how those skills particularly lean into the game. Is this, I mean, there's looking through a telescope. I don't know. <sighs> well, there's a, I didn't see this personally, but there's a dark room in the game. And oh, there yeah. is a point where... That's a good point. It's kind of the same, like, variation on the theme of... Like Razor and Sid make a a, de- um, a demo tape for Green Tentacle and send it off, and that then gets Green Tentacle to help you. Um, Wendy sends off a manuscript for something, and that gets someone else to help you. Michael sends off; he like develops some photos and sends them off, okay. and that gets that person yeah. to help you. Okay, the, so there the is a reason. The manuscript is the Meteor's uh, memoir. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. It's very poorly written. So she doesn't write, she edits it. She's 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 got chops, which I was happy to yeah. Yeah, it was mentioned in the, the guide I was reading that she was literally the only character who could even make out how bad the writing was or something. Like no one else can even read it to identify mm. what it actually is. That's a talented editor. Yeah. <laughs> 
Let's talk a bit more about the visuals. So there are, as I say, various versions, including a fan remake, which is even slightly more higher res and with more colors and things like this. Um, but I'm, I am definitely personally most fond of the original look, partly because of my nostalgia for that original Commodore 64 version screenshot that I saw back in, in Zap in 1987, I guess. Um, and I, I do think that they actually maintain more of a charm than the kind of the slightly tarted up versions in a way. And it almost becomes like a, a sort of tacit art style when you're dealing with such low, low, low poly, I nearly said low pixel, low pixel characters. Um, it, as I say, it reminds me actually of um, David Crane's little computer people in a way. And the fact that you've got these very simplistically drawn backdrops oh, yeah. and, and things like that and um for me it was just the fascination of being able to interact with multiple things so uh, uh, games hadn't really always let us up to this point you know thinking about simple arcade games and platformers and things it was very much you know enemies kill you or you kill them you pick stuff up um the idea of you know pick pick up cassette and record music on cassette and um Kind of yeah, this this sort of level, even though it was all all hard coded and and predetermined, it always felt like there was a there was a, an extra level of kind of realism to to a game like this. I know it sounds absurd when you when you look at it and think about it, but the sort of the 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 fact that you could interact with taps in a sink and make the water come out the tap and stuff like this with a few clicks was was appealing to me, and and the fact that the graphics are so simplistic. Kind of, I don't know. They're, to me, they have a real charm. I don't know about you. I, I have to admit, I don't think I play that many games that are, are quite as old as this. No. And if I do, like they've often been touched up or completely redone or something in the meantime. Like 1987, you're talking about like the early NES stuff that I'm more familiar with. So seeing these these like older style computers, which I don't have that much experience with, like compared to something like you know the color palette that you generally get on an nes like i really really like this i like the really bright kind of almost like too bright like clashing colors and mm -hmm. the large pixels the characters they are especially the ones that are specifically drawn to be grotesque they are kind of unnerving looking but <laughs> i also i like that kind of they look like um what are those things what are those little football uh like bobblehead things that you used to get all the time like the little uh, they're not bobbleheads because the heads don't move. But anybody mm. from the UK, I'm sure you're aware of those horrible little like resin statues with the overly large heads. Oh, yeah, I know the one. Yeah, do you mean the little the little collectible football men? Yeah, type things. Yeah, I forgot what they're called. Micro stars or something. Yeah, like I'm yeah, sure there's yeah. a specific name for like that kind of right. thing. But yeah, like these these big sprites kind of remind me of that. And if, for something that I don't see very often or like don't see employed very often in the games that I play. Um, I really enjoyed it for you know the for what it was for for this game. I don't know that you know it's not not necessarily something that I think that the industry needs to return to. But um, and it, also comparatively with something like it going directly into this from the remastered Day of the Tentacle, yeah. which looks very like nice and sort of painted or cartoony. It's it's a it's a big like jump back in time but it yeah, is yeah. also kind even of even from the original day of the tentacle 
I well, mean, yeah, that was like the seven years, years on, and so yeah, they were in SVGA or whatever. And yeah, it was, uh, yeah, they were able to really, you know, go to town with with an actual art style. Yeah, yeah. So I kind of enjoyed it as much as like a history lesson as as anything else. As weird as that sounds, it it is very funny to watch the. Um characters uh walk i in the commodore 64 version and then the they got their little arms like right next to them and that is just because on the commodore 64 um you just wouldn't be able to like each of those characters is i don't know four different sprites being put together and so like Mm -hmm. it had to be very narrow or else you'd have to use some other sprites and you didn't have those sprites uh and it just makes for a very you know it's always fun to look at how these limitations like create really striking aesthetics that people weren't even necessarily trying to go for but they were just sort of working with what they got as well as they could and i i like the way certainly that's not my my issue with any of the datedness of the game is is not um the way it looks and it does i mean this is the other thing about the the scum engine uh is that it allowed for all that interaction you were talking about leon like the hamster in the microwave thing was you know two other programmers showing it to gilbert who are just like hey yeah. we threw the yeah see what happens when we do this ha, joke. Ha. yeah uh and it i think just again enforces like if someone more serious than me want to teach a class more serious than mine. I would definitely recommend a class on like the history of engines and, and these sort of middleware platforms and companies coming up with them because uh, with scum, you can just see like, Oh, once we have this set up correctly, it's not that hard to pop in. You know, we just run out of room eventually, but like if you want to pop in something when the faucet turns on, et cetera, you know, the, the, fact that game designers seem to discover object-oriented programming before everyone else and just made their own, you know, uh, engines like Scum. Um, there's something interesting that I don't really know enough about, but I think a lot of the mm. pleasures of this game do come from them, again, not worrying about putting out product and just like spending a year coming up with this this model uh, engine that they could use. So I do want to talk a little about the the music. Um, so there is a theme tune. The original composers, uh, Chris Grigg and David Lawrence, um, depending on which version you play, it's going to sound very different. You might have a speaker beeper version or you might have a, an Amiga sample kind of based one converted by Brian Hales. Um, it's a fun tune. Um, you can hear it over and over again um, by restarting the game if you want. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, I don't. I I, I was. I'd be interested to look up a like a, a multi instrumented either you know either orchestral or rock and roll band kind of cover version. I expect you can find them on YouTube. Um, but I I think what I did want to talk about was the the NES soundtrack. So this this is a very quiet game on its in its original formats. But the co- the console conversion has music from David Warhol, George Sanger, David Hayes, Dave Govett, and the Famicom version has even more or different music by Tsukasa Tawada. Um, I interviewed George Sanger for our Sound of Play podcast some years ago, one of my favourite guests ever, just such a cool, funny, lovely guy um, who has been responsible for some yeah legendary games. We're looking up a photo. He, he yeah. wears some snazzy uh, cowboy suits. He sure does. Yes. Yeah. He's a real character, um, but not in a kind of overly um, 
contrived way. I think that's just who he is. Um, and yeah, so the NES version is like, has music all the way through because it's a console game. So like, how do we make this seem like more like a console game? We'll, we'll have some actual, we'll have an actual soundtrack. Whereas, I mean, I, I don't know, having not played that version, I don't know whether that works for the game, but I think it's cool that there is the option to play it that way. Jesse, how would you describe, what genre would you describe the original Maniac Mansion theme as based on the kind of the bleepy, bloopy version that you, <laughs> you know? I, I think I think bleepy, bloopy was kind of <laughs> as far as I was going to get. I mean, yeah, it's a, a nice rock and roll 64. In there. Um, I mean, right. I guess it is, right. It's, it's sort of trying to have some of the sort of new wave energy. I don't know. It's... Um, it is uh, young men trying to make something that sounds cool on a Commodore 1986. <laughs> That's the yeah, but it's not yeah. Rob Hubbard, right? It's, uh, it's uh, not. Right. Well, I think are right. The, 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 but not coming from kind of a chiptune demo scene in any way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It sets the scene. But yes, the NES version. It's a shame Brian isn't here, as I say, because this is the version he knows. But I, I've watched some footage, and it, it's just music all the way through, like pretty much. Whereas the the computer versions are quiet, um, which you know brings us on to the sound design, which you wanted to mention, John. The game the game is almost silent. Now I have a lot of memories of sitting there at my eight bit computers uh, and and the Amiga to a lesser extent, but certainly in the eighties playing computer games two silence just the the whine of the crt maybe a bit of white noise sometimes it was it was quite normal quite meditative um and yeah obviously now it's uh, i mean i might have put the radio on back then or a, or a cassette um now I'm, i may listen to a podcast or whatever but there are long hours in this game with no sound at all unless you go back to the the main corridor in in the lobby in in the house in which case you will hear a clock ticking and that is it but it's not it doesn't sound like a clock ticking it's just a kind of noise yeah <laughs> that's, that's pretty much it so but i don't know i mean yeah it's weird sometimes you solve a puzzle and there's there's kind of no there's no acknowledgement or audio wise there are some yeah. sound effects in the game like you drop the developer you try to pick up this develop uh, photo developer fluid and you drop it and it makes a kind of a very brief kind of splash and tinkle but it's it's yeah it's hyper hyper simple stuff there there are definitely moments in cutscenes where the lack of a music sting was kind of like you know taking a step on the stairs that isn't there yeah yeah, yeah especially uh, when there's like the, the cutscenes do actually have I, I want to say a reasonable amount of dialogue, but you know, a few lines of dialogue, and to have characters like wandering about, but not even be intercut with like really basic sounding footsteps, I thought mm -hmm. was um, a little bit jarring. But I don't know whether it's. I think it's the the point that there's music that is, or not music, even sound effects that are like very seem to be very purposely placed. So you know, you do hear things like the microwave turning on and yep. obviously there's various points where you're playing with records and cassette tapes or i assume you do i think that they're all probably or at least largely uh you know completely mandatory to actually get through the game mm -hmm. like listening and recording a couple of different tapes yeah um and you hear like the occasional crashes and things a bit where you play one of the tapes and like the windows crack in 
Uh, very similar, uh, very similar to those windows in that bloody hallway with the dogs in Resident Evil cracking, right. yeah. uh, which sort of got me a little bit when I saw that those two windows crack at the same time. Yeah, no horror dogs in this. Game. No, unfortunately not. Um, but you, there's there's also cues for things like um, you hear the sounds of the swimming pool draining when you do that, which I'm pretty sure that's mandatory. Yeah, and you have a, a very specific time limit to get into the pool and get back out of it before mm. something goes wrong so it, it kind of it it does it, it does what i would consider to be a fairly like minimal uh requirement for it yeah. um obviously based on the fact that yeah the original game was they were struggling for space and uh and you know the the commodore 64 bless it was working hard enough just moving these big big pixely characters around and keeping all these interactable objects in memory and stuff like this. Yeah. But it is then, I think there's a few points where there are sound cues that are very specifically like almost a jump scare, especially when you know what happens. And one of them is the, um, the doorbell when it goes off. Oh yeah. Because you, yeah, you eventually get wind of the fact that, um, although Ed mostly is staying in his room, and you need to lure him out a couple of times for various things. He is also waiting for something to be delivered. So you can press mm. the doorbell to get him out of his room. And you can do it, which is something that you probably have done a few times during the game. But then there's a very scripted moment, which I, I don't know whether it's supposed to be after you've done a certain amount of things. Or if it's like literally like 15 minutes after the game starts or something where a package gets delivered and the doorbell goes. And that happens and you're sitting there thinking hold on i didn't press the doorbell that guy's going to come out of his room and like two of my characters in the hallway that's going to be a hell of a problem for me so that's kind of like from that point of view the very specific use of sound it there is is very effective and there are a couple of other points where you do get like this sudden sort of jarring noise that goes off and you're like what the hell is that it's been silent for the last 20 minutes so i think it it yeah, it's minimal and possibly to a sort of a bare minimum, but what oh, yeah. is there actually fulfills quite a good purpose. Hmm. So the probably the yeah, the most possibly the most well known thing about Maniac Mansion is that it was the first scum game with this particular kind of interface with a, a small list of relatively small list of uh, verbs, actions on screen. Of course, they'd absolutely uh dialed this down to the fewest number of verbs you could ever possibly need to use except of course over the next the course of the next uh i guess five six seven years of making scum games they reduced the number further and further still until the point that of course modern point and click adventure games or remasters of old point and click adventure games pretty much have one verb <laughs> which is use uh, it turns out you can actually kind of solve any puzzle with with a with a use. Whether that's actually been reductive in some ways to solving puzzles, I don't know. Your mileage may vary on that. Your taste may vary. In this game, actually, there is still a certain element of while you're not passing the parser, you're still thinking. So I've got this number of potential interactions with these objects. And you're actually kind of thinking which ones are logically paired with others. So in this game, you have a fix, 
verb, which does now seem completely redundant because use tools with thing that is broken. Surely that's all you need. But back back in 1986, when they were programming this, they thought fix was still an essential verb. I mean, how do you think this plays out now? You, I think you were, Jesse, implying that actually the the kind of the interface, partly just the moving moving of the cursor around, which uh, which on the Commodore 64 wasn't even mouse driven. It was joystick, of course, eight way joystick um, was actually is is one of the kind of the barriers to enjoying the, this 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 particular game in in the modern day. Yeah, I, I think the UI is the main. I think that's why this is an interesting sort of amphibious form rather than a game I would uh like I was thinking about it in terms of um, the, you know, we played Trinity, the Infocom game, mm -hmm. and that had some dead man walking, like, you know, you had to pick up an object in the first screen that you needed in the last <laughs> screen, kind of crap, right? <laughs> uh, which was not great. But, and I did end up having to, like, run through that game again because of something like that. But the thing mm. there is, like, Typing is kind of fun and it's fast and you don't have to like wait for a thing to go across the screen. Like mm -hmm. the, those Infogam games are like you can turn off the descriptions. Mm -hmm. You finally get to use the vaunted parser to like, you know, put the thing on top of the thing while doing this other thing. And then you've just solved two puzzles at once. Mm -hmm. uh, and like there was actually some sort of pleasure in having to whip through that whole thing again. Like I wouldn't do it for fun, but there was a mastery and like a sense of like, oh, right. I remember how all this stuff works. I do not want to play this game again for a very long time because it, it's just, it's slow. Uh, and you got to click on a lot of stuff that I don't want to have to click on. And it, there's just a lot of what feels now like unnecessary friction in the same way that, you know, the first Dungeons and Dragons game made you memorize all the spells every night individually or whatever. Like, <laughs> the, you know, Demon Souls had had personal encumbrance along with, you know, uh, mm. uh, you, you know what you're actually using. It was also like, oh, yeah, you, you can't carry things. There was this guy. You got to drop things off with the guy. Like, it's a common um, pattern to me of, like, you think you need all this stuff that's really just kind of friction and cruft. Yeah. Uh, and maybe the magic of doing it at the time is enough that it's actually kind of fun to click on push instead of yeah. pull. But like, it really is mostly friction. Like if you look at those verbs, only a few are going to be relevant uh, at any given moment. And they're not, I don't know. What it made me, made me realize is I, you know, one thing I'm very not retro on maybe is this because I really like VR escape room type games. And a mm. lot of that is that motion controls introduce a lot of verb possibilities, you know, of just like twisting and turning or whatever, you know, mm. doing stuff. Uh, that means you don't need this kind of trivial friction or making these impossible puzzles. I, I don't know. It's not a well-formed yeah. thought, but definitely that no, no. was, I think, I, you know, yeah, I, I, I was listening to podcasts while I was playing this. I was, you know, yeah. like I was not uh, immersed in a way that I was with, you know, I mean, some other older games like Trendy or Prince of Persia more. Mm. And I think it really is just like, we don't really talk about game feel in the context of these sorts of games like we do with mm. action games. But I mean, it's really just a game feel thing. Like, Yeah, yeah. I was actually going to say, though, uh, compared to playing uh, my memories of playing Monkey Island 2 on the Amiga with its 11 discs, I think it was, 
and hmm. with two floppy uh, two floppy drives I had at the time before I had a hard drive, like the game feel here is playing it on whether it's on the the yeah, the, the PS4 game on a PS5. Um, obviously, there's absolutely no friction in terms of uh, pauses or loading between rooms or anything like that. I'm not sure how smooth the experience was on the two sided five and a quarter floppy slow disk drive on the Commodore 64, but playing it now on 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 the PC on scum vm or or on the console versions is frictionless in every other respect than the design elements i suppose so the the hardware elements are no longer a friction which is at least some some kind of mercy and i think the other aspect that i think i suppose is a is a feels to me like a friction that isn't fun is the fact that because the resolution on the game was so low and and they haven't sort of done anything to expand it out is the inventory is only, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the game doesn't have hundreds of items in it, but you can be holding like maybe eight, nine, ten things potentially at a time, and you have to scroll down manually through them by clicking on an arrow, which is, uh, especially if you're trying multiple possibilities out, multiple verbs and items and, and things on screen, and it doesn't actually just highlight the thing on screen that you're holding, hovering your cursor over. Um, so in the remaster of Day of the Tentacle, you just tap up on the D-pad or presumably press a key on the PC and it shows you every interactable item on the screen. But even on the remastered Day of the Tentacle version of Maniac Mansion, that there isn't there is no such thing in this in this game. So you have to kind of work out what's interactable and what isn't. However, I would say for the most part, it's fairly obvious but there's a few tricky ones like the loose panel in the library like it looks like a dozen literally or maybe more other things on other screens that you can't interact with things like that that's where the walkthrough Mm-mm. pays dividends john how, how did you find actually interacting with the game um i feel like i had kind of a, a double-edged sword of it where it didn't bother me that much and there are some points where i made um let's say uh like made some exceptions for basically I've mentioned before I have my three characters Dave was kind of not particularly useful at any of the other puzzles so I mostly just stuck him outside on the porch where he wouldn't get into any trouble (laughs) and then mostly because you can do almost everything with just two characters Mm. instead of three i mostly just ended up using him as a like a receptacle to deposit all of the items that i felt <laughs> either were useless Save or the meal. no longer useful yeah. <laughs> so dave just ended up being dumped with all of the bits of food once i realized i wasn't going to need any of mm. them um and some keys that i thought i'd never need Beautiful. again so like for that for that purpose i didn't find it too bad because i kind of made my own little funny joke out of it um but there are some points with uh, I think it took me a shockingly long amount of time to realize that there's a one of the prompts is oh I can't I can't remember what it's referred to as it's called it's not look at but it's like what's this what or is. something what, yeah, is. what is what is and I assumed for quite a long time that I'd click that and it would then you know give me like a few words of a description oh, no. of what is this thing on the wall that I'm looking at like and you get that from okay you can read a picture Mm-hmm. And the and the guy will say like, oh yeah, this is a picture of Edna or whatever. But the what is thing seems to only be useful for basically scanning around the room, and yeah. it shows you the thing without actually having to do another verb yeah. to it, without basically walking. I really up to feel everything. like that maybe there's a mod out there, but I really feel like they could have just uh, they could have just tweaked that in the in that the should just versions. be what the cursor does. All yeah, the time. exactly. 
But I mean, mm. again, again, in 1986, they hadn't thought of it. Yeah. And uh, and this is just an yeah. emulated version of that. So, yeah. but yeah, absolutely, it's a it's a pain. And yeah, like part of the fun of the game in 1986 was presumably you know spending three months playing this and figuring it all out and feeling Precisely. like a genius. Instead yeah. of a bunch of people now who are like, I need to do this in three hours for a podcast exactly. recording. Yeah. And, and that brings us on to the puzzles and solutions. So obviously none of us can really speak honestly and purely about kind of uh, working our way through this stuff. But I think I did pick up an appreciation for which puzzles I would have loved yeah. and which ones I would have hated. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, uh, yeah, well, um, John, which ones fall into those categories for you? Which ones do you think were clever and brilliant, if any? And which ones do you think were, you know, whether they were moon logic or pure? Well, you know, firstly, let's nonsense. let's put the ones that are absolutely detestable as the ones that you can completely soft lock your game or hard lock your sure. game. So things yeah. like that stupid telescope where you have to feed the dimes into it mm. and move it into the right position where I think you get four dimes in the game if you're yep. lucky and you have a potential, you can solve the puzzle in two yeah possibly but you've also got to have lined up a lot of other things for that to happen and you need another coin to play the video game yeah well you get another coin you get a quarter which you can quarter, also waste right. yeah, at some point but i think by the time you can waste it it may be too you may be far enough oh, okay. already like you can you can use it in the pepsi machine in the lab at the end ah. but i think by that point you've obviously already had to use it for its designated purpose right so anything that's like that you can waste mm -hmm. the paint thinner to to ruin the guy's painting yep. but then you don't have it to get through a mandatory yeah. doorway there's no later. reason for that at all other than to yeah to lock you out yeah there's yeah. there's three or four puzzles like that that i genuinely think are possibly mean-spirited to include them and actually have them completely lock you like that but some of the the other things like i as much as i've just said the telescope thing was was irritating when you actually solve it it's like mm. oh that's actually quite cool that you've yeah spun that round and that's how you're doing it after you've probably spent 20 minutes running around looking for a pair of binoculars or glasses or something to to do with it but if you um, didn't know you had to open the door turn the light on first all that yeah. stuff yeah basically you can waste your money else. And yeah. and you can do so many things in such a weird order here. Like the game, I've heard the game described as being extremely non-linear in a mm -hmm. bunch of places. And yeah, so that, again, that telescope puzzle, you could break it for yourself by just not realizing that there was anything there at all. Because the other things that you zoom in on are just nonsense. Like you could zoom in on a bit of the windowsill or something. And if you then go and zoom in on the yeah. puzzle, you know, the thing where you're supposed to be that just looks like a corner of a painting... How are you to know that that is actually correct? Like, but for when it actually comes together, I thought that was quite cool. Um, mm. Ditto the um, the I think all of the characters they're they're kind of ending puzzles apart from Bernard's that are quite similar with the idea of getting the item and then sending it to the the publicist guy who will, promises that he will publish anything and then waiting and kind of getting it to come back. I like the idea that they're kind of you know, it, it's built into the game that there is this multiple, multiple step thing. And unless you've screwed yourself over previously, you're probably going to just come to it eventually. And and part of all of the endings is just waiting for something to happen. You wait for the publicist to come and pick the parcel up and mm. then send it back to you. And you wait for the, the whatever they're called, the tentacle police or the meteor police to turn <laughs> up after five minutes. Like, So there's there's 
uh, there's like parts of this that kind of just fall into place. And one of them that I did quite like that worked for me was the puzzle where Dr. Fred is trying to play the arcade cabinet and realizes he can't because the power's off or something's Mm -hmm. not working with it. And he goes and he does like a manual shutdown of the power. And he he says, he's talking to Edna and he says like, this is going to take six to eight minutes or something before the power comes back on. And it goes off. And there's a puzzle there where you are supposed to get some tools and go up into the the loft space or whatever and um, reconnect the wires that are specifically stopping those arcade machines from working. Um, And if you're going to do that, you have to set up another character to turn the power off while while you do it so that you don't get electrocuted and then turn the power back on. And it just happened for me that at the same time that I was following this guide trying to do this puzzle he actually turned the power to the whole building off mm-hmm. so it kind of lined up that i managed to get away with just taking bernard yeah. up to the attic to do this while the power was like um properly uh that's actually cool. like what's the so what's the game the logic knew that yeah off? so it knew that either way you couldn't be ele- you couldn't be electrocuted as long as the power power equals off then yeah yeah that almost seems like it's something that's set up to if you've somehow fluffed up something else and you haven't got two characters left, you know, uh, if two of your characters have died, yeah, so you don't right. have another one to flip the switch. It's a backup. Yeah, yeah, there is still a possible way of doing this. Because there's no other... Yeah, that, that makes sense, actually, because I couldn't think, what is the reason for this timed window for the power to be off? Because it doesn't actually particularly affect anything else, although it would also presumably stop you being able to solve the telescope puzzle if it can happen at the same time as that. Yeah, it'll have all sorts of weird effects with whether or not you manage to get the proper batteries for the torch, because you can find a pair of batteries that only last for about 30 seconds and (laughs) then you need to find a proper pair later that that are permanent. Yeah, And of course, some of the rooms uh, we should say, I, I think what struck me about the puzzle design in Maniac Mansion is how few locked doors there are. Like, there's only... There's only three or four locked doors in the game, but there are dozens of unlocked doors, which feels unusual for a for a puzzle game uh, to me. And in, 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 even back then or, or today, um, which, but I quite appreciate that. I like just the, the fun of opening a new door and going into a new room. But then quite a few of the rooms, maybe three or four start off with the light off. So you've only got a kind of gray outline of your character and then simply the the puzzle is find the object in the dark which is just hovering your cursor around with what is and um and then turn on light again in in most cases there's not even a kind of barrier to that it's not like i was expecting a lot more the light didn't come on or you know i don't know electrocutions or something You're something like, annoying light comes on and there's a jump scare it's like a massive t-rex yeah. skeleton like right over the top of you or something with its mouth yeah open or something it's like you you would kind of hope that there'd be a little bit more to it Mm. Uh, players can microwave the hamster in any of the computer releases but not the european nes version but they have to use a sick-minded character such as sid or razor because they're musicians (laughs) (laughs) when doing it showing the exploded hamster to weird ed will make him kill that character I found uh, an interesting advertisement that I would like to sort of talk about this in general because because mm. John was saying that there's a few things that feel maybe mean or sadistic, and I this is what's so fascinating about it to me right is that so this is linked on uh, Phil Frey Digital Antiquarian's article a new forcing games part three scum uh, and mm. which is 
relevant and interesting to anyone listening to this, and also the next one, The 14 Deadly Sins of Graphic Adventure Design, or Why Ron Gilbert Hated Adventure Games, is also mm. relevant, right? Where, yeah. you know, he's talking about Monkey Island and, and, and this his experience with this game, you know, uh, being part of uh, what he's learning. Uh, but so this ad is um, big headline, new hope for battered story gamers. <laughs> and then in quotes, there's a lot I like about computer adventures, but it sure isn't fun getting killed all the time. That's why Maniac Mansion is so refreshing. I can play from start to finish without dying once. End quote. Uh, that's more than great fan mail. It's a very astute observation because while most story games treat you like the meat in the dog food factory, Lucasfilm story games treat you like a human being who just wants some good, clean fun, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, unique design that lets you play the game instead of fighting the computer. Mm. Big part about the no typing interface. You know, the, you don't have to guess the noun. I remember this in the in the manual for Monkey Island when I bought yeah, that. Yeah, no, the there's a like manifesto in later ones that isn't in Maniac Mansion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's interesting that they're kind of, and this is an ad for it and Zach McCracken. So, but uh-huh. but that they're claiming. Um, most story game designers seem to think people love to get clobbered. We don't. Mm. After all, how much fun can it be to have a fatal accident every three and a half minutes, then reload your save game, take a few timid steps forward, and save it again? Seems mm. more like paranoia than entertainment. That's why Lucasfilm story games make it downright difficult to die. Oh, you'll get into major hot water, all right, but you'll have mm-hmm. the fun of getting out of it, too. And this is a fascinating game to play after reading you know in, in the yeah. context of that ad. yeah yeah, like, yeah yeah and it really does just come down to i mean a the the object oriented stuff is a double-edged sword like if it's all cute easter eggs that are epiphenomenal like in duke nukem forever or not forever you know whatever uh 3d uh you know that, but <laughs> but right you put the hamster in the microwave and blow it up then ed kills you and like fine that's fair but there's so many yeah. other less fair possibilities for essentially easter eggs to blow up or just little interactions that yes it's i you know the 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 line between a puzzle game or adventure you know like i've been thinking about how immersive sims and rpgs both share relationships of like there's not a puzzle there's a problem and you're trying to find ways to solve it and in a you know good rpg you're doing that with many different ways of manipulating a spreadsheet essentially and an immersive sim you know many different ways of uh, manipulating physics or whatever um and this game is someone who wants to do that but does not have like it is brittle it is trying to set up problems instead of puzzles Mm. but everything is so you know binary of like this thing does that thing uh that yeah it, it you know it creates you know these are people really actively trying to not have dead man walking scenarios creating mm. myriad dead man walking yeah scenarios yeah yeah in yeah and yeah i think i think most of the um most of the kill everyone scenarios uh most of them involve the kind of the the nuclear meltdown which is fairly well signposted and yeah Essentially, if everyone, if the if the mansion blows up and everyone dies, you just reload your last save. So as long as you're saving often, that you know is is not such a big deal. But it is the weird individual deaths of the kids that perhaps are more, um, more perturbing, um, but also quite amusing. Um, copy the copy the record from Green Tentacles Room called Tentacle Mating Calls onto the cassette tape. 
play the tape in Green Tentacle's room, Green Tentacle will attempt to mate with the character, killing them. Uh, I mean, that's pretty funny. Wow. You've had to jump through some hoops. Maybe there's <laughs> some lust in this game. Oh, that's a good yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. That... Uh, and they're clearly competing with Sierra. Uh, of just like, yeah. well, people do like funny death, so yeah, have, yeah, for beat sure. Them on that too. Yeah, you can drown drown the the kid who's in the pool at the time by refilling the pool. You know, so again, you'd have to kind of choose to do that one. Um, if you if, microwave, if you get your glass of water mixed yes, up and I did microwave the wrong glass, you kill yourself. Yeah, radioactive water steam um, is yeah. instant death. And the game does not tell you. It just says you have a glass of water. It doesn't distinguish whether you nope. got it from the pool or the tap. Mm-hmm. No, nope. so that's you cool. have to have worked that out yourself. Uh, and and this other one again, Green Tentacle involved. Uh, have Sid or Razor record a song in the music room and then mail that tape to the publisher. When you get the contract, you give it to the Green Tentacle, who becomes insanely jealous and kills you. <laughs> <laughs> Which again is, I mean, you know, it's pretty. Yes, but you, the weirdest part about that is you can imagine that that is how also that ending of the game might work because the idea yeah. is you you record yourself on the tape, you give it to Green Tentacle, he listens to it, and in the process he takes his own demo tape out of the tape player. So you yeah. pick up his demo tape, which sounds like crap to be honest, and send it into the guy. So I was kind of assuming when I was reading that, that you would be sending your own tape in and say, hey, check out this green tentacle that sounds really good. Yeah. But obviously not. Yeah. And I actually, I suppose, uh, while I thought that those puzzles, I like the recording stuff and and all that, that that was good, good puzzling, clever stuff. And and again, from as somebody who was around at the time, that would have been, that would have felt very sophisticated in terms of the sort of the layers and levels of interactions um, that were going on. Um, the fact that you the game partially sort of exists in in pseudo real time, but then you can also have puzzles that are solved by sending things and receiving things in the post it, it, within minutes uh, kind of pl- flies against flies in the face of that. So there's a sort of Ill- illogicality to that. Some of the dead ends, um, obviously, yeah. Killing a kid, killing one of the kids via the methods above can often lead to to lockout uh, situations. If only one kid is left alive and they don't have the rusty key, they can be trapped in the dungeon. Um, oh yeah, you can lock yourself out within seconds if you take if you yeah. go into the house with one character <laughs> who has the key to open the door. Immediately get captured by Edna in the kitchen, which can happen in the space of thirty seconds yeah. of entering. Stuck yeah. in the dungeon, no one else can get into the house to rescue you. So that's restart right there, yeah. and it might take you a while to realise that. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. That that's the I think that's the key thing. Like if it actually told you that you were in a dead man walking state, it it would be a slightly different thing. But yeah, you could potentially just lose hours of the the threat of fate. What, what yeah, yeah. But I, I am looking at uh, on grumpygamer.com why adventure mm-hmm. games suck by Ron Gilbert from two thousand four. Uh, but he actually wrote it back in 1989. Uh, and under there is uh, one of the headers uh, is real time is bad drama. And uh, talks mm. about that. Yeah. And, and just, I really want a developer commentary track on this game because there's plenty of good, like the, you know, it, there's plenty of good things and they'd have a good time talking about it. But, but just uh, someone who has done all this stuff. I don't, uh, John, you've played Thimbleweed Park, right? Yes. How, yeah, a few years ago now. How, 
is it is it formally ambitious in any like what's the most tricky thing it tries to do or is it like just good conventional point and click mechanics good story funny i mean um, like i'm gonna say it kind of leans towards the second it's kind of quite good general point and click funny characters the thing that kind of distinguishes it from Man uh, maniac mansion is you've got three or four different characters who have their own separate storylines but they all take place like separated from each other rather than here having everything kind of all all joined but otherwise i feel like there's there's something now that i've played maniac mansion and my not amazing memory of or not by not amazing i mean my not particularly good memory of it was a few years ago that i played thimbleweed park not i have bad memories of it but um yeah like it feels to me that thimbleweed park was kind of the er example of what maniac mansion could have been it's like what they were possibly heading towards but slightly missed the mark a bit and this is them like course correcting and saying hey we can do something very similar and here's how we've fixed some of the glaring problems with maniac mansion along the way right and but but the approach is we're going to deal with having multiple characters by having them narratively or thematically or emotionally affect each other but not these mechanics where yeah uh, they're mostly physically separated from each other right right and that that's in right because that makes you're either going to go one or two directions if you're i don't know if, if ron gilbert was or like chris crawford or something maybe he'd be chasing the 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 windmill of like actually making this kind of complicated I, and this is the thing is all of these games i always find these games fascinating and frustrating in equal measure i had mentioned suspended by uh, michael berlin who also did bubsy that's who i remember earlier uh -huh. um but the, that's the one with your like in suspended animation and there's six robots and it comes with like a board with markers on it so you know and each robot has a different sense uh, so you're trying to, you know, figure out what the hell is going on through their coordination. Um, yeah, Labyrinth of, of Crete, which was the first game by um, the full Zarin guy, whose name I have again, Cliff Johnson, right? Which was Jason and Hercules, I think. But again, like co-op, you know, you do this and I do this puzzles. Uh, there's, you know, a Goonies game that's uh, by the people who made the Bruce Lee game that is like yeah. a two-player yeah. You know, sort of lost Vikings-ish in a primitive way, mm. uh, and Castles of Dr. Creep. Uh, and this game, from hearing about its initial conception as not like an adventure game so much as a, you have multiple characters and they have different abilities and you solve puzzles with them. You know, that, that goes by the wayside because it's such an impossible task, but yeah, I don't know. I'm just fascinated by how this game starts with like, this is a clockwork game in real time with puzzles and multiple characters coordinating that you get to choose from who do different things. Like, as a first adventure game, that is hilarious. Mm. Uh, and, and how much of that survives, like, you know, um, some. But, um, God, they, you know, Ron Gilbert really took on the world. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, the 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 puzzle that I think is both the most um, or the the sorry the fail state that is is kind of one of the most egregious, but one of the most obviously easily fixed is the rip open the envelope one. Oh so god, if you, yeah. If you rip open the envelope, it's game over basically because you've, you've ruined you've ruined an envelope. It's but, not even for everybody. Like only two or three of the characters ruin it. The other ones are all fine. It right. just makes no sense at all. Yeah. 
And of course, the obvious answer to that is that they even Lucasfilm would have done probably in two or three years time is you have an infinite box of envelopes. You just go and get another envelope, right? Or something like that, which they did do, like thinking about the melting grog mugs in Monkey Island. You can go back and get more. And maybe they'd, they they did you know, famously Monkey Island had one or two fail states, uh, you know, not solving a simple puzzle within 10 minutes or something like that. But generally it would... Uh, it would put you back on track kindly. Um, so, yeah, they could have, you know, even, even if they'd given you like a bunch of envelopes <laughs> rather than one um, stuff like that. So, yeah, it's interesting. Um, and ultimately, like, again, uh, probably not the first, but an early-ish example of a game with multiple endings and reasons to replay. Uh, again, harking back to being old, a lot of the times, one of the things that me and my friends used to make fun of was games that didn't even have an ending screen at this point. You would just, it would just literally flip back to the first. You wouldn't even get simple text saying, well done, or, you know, and even that we would, we would kind of make fun of. Um, some kind of ending would be good. But yeah, this game had, uh, depending on how you'd finished it and with who, you get different endings. Um, one involves if you do finish the game with Dave actually dead, it's it's they've thought of that. And you've got an ending where, you know, the girl you were going in to rescue is now mourning the fact that her boyfriend died. <laughs> uh, it's probably not as serious as, as that sounds. But um, there's an ending where the meteor ends up on a talk show and <laughs> various uh, various other kind of uh, wacky endings. Um I don't know if anyone, if any of us actually bothered kind of looking through them all, but if you were going to play this properly, um, yeah, you'd, I think you'd, it's, it's an odd one in that if you'd worked out how to solve the game yourself, you'd then have to work out how to resolve the game in different ways to see the different endings, which would have been a treat again, back in 1987. Yeah. It's a replayability when there's not that yeah. many games around potentially, and you haven't got very much time to play them, but yeah, I mean, I, I did two of the very different like character pathways. As I mentioned, the Bernard one is quite different from how the other three work. Um, and if I'd had time, I would have loved to do another complete playthrough with the other two characters to see their specific endings. I think they do run along the same kind of lines where you do the same puzzle with sending something off to the publicist guy and getting the letter back from him, and then it changes how you affect... Uh, getting past purple tentacle basically but i would have loved to see the other two if i'd had the time for it and then as you say there's various different sort of conundrums with if a couple of different characters die and various other things so mm -hmm. yeah it's it's certainly if i think for for its time it sounds extremely ambitious compared to even a lot of things i've seen from a long time later that wouldn't have done this much legwork there yes he says in his game developer talk post-mortem uh, as as is so often the case with things that were innovative and greatly creative, like a lot of it was based on the fact that they didn't really know what they were doing, so they didn't know what you theoretically, in, in inverted commas, couldn't do, and so they tried stuff, and of course now we've ended up with a game, you know, it's a bit of a curate's egg in some ways, in there are aspects to it that you just wouldn't, that you wouldn't do now, that wouldn't fly now, but also you've got a whole, a whole host of elements that went on to be incredibly influential in in future games design and yeah like many of the games we cover i guess especially ones of of this sort of age there's an extra ending in the nes version uh 
you can get rid of the meteor. Uh, if you made the car lift off without the meteor on board, you can hurry upstairs to the room with the man-eating plant and feed the meteor to the plant. Hmm. That sounds kind of cool. <laughs> I mean, I suppose that's probably another fail state, isn't it? Because at least, at least the ending that I did with um, Razor, which I believe is the same one as you do with... It is Sid, isn't it? The other musician guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so they, they both require you to basically like grab the meteor and dump it in the car and send the car off. But I presume if you send the car off earlier in the game, then that just becomes un- unwinnable at that point and the mansion probably blows right. up. Yeah. Yeah. Brief mention, uh, I don't think we got it over here, but it's sort of interesting because we're now at a time when uh, we're seeing lots and lots of these, but it wasn't so common then outside of things like Super Mario cartoons. But Maniac Mansion not only got a TV series, it ran for three seasons and it was created by Eugene Levy, of course, now of American you know, Pie co- fame. Yeah, and yeah. co created the absolutely beloved Shits Creek, uh, co created with his son. Um, and, at- and stars Joe Flaherty. I mean, they're both SCTV fellows. So, right, yeah. right. Uh, uh, d- did you watch this as- at the time, Jesse? No, I had no idea it was on. And oh, I- okay. Uh, was surprised to find out about it and, and I mean I found out about it when I was first researching uh, the game for the class and watched yeah. you know five minutes of it and it's, it's, all out, it's it all doesn't out have much to do with the game no that's uh, what yeah. Ron Gilbert was saying it, it's yeah. like it, and, and this still happens now you look at the recent now cancelled already Netflix Resident Evil series like Oof. the fans are going Oof. but f- what's this got to do with <laughs> the thing that I liked, why, you know, it just shares the name. Um, apparently, yeah, like the main character is pretty much kind of spot on. But other than that, it it shares little with the game. It, it's kind of a befuddled dad sitcom. And Joe Flaherty yeah. is wonderful. And he's right. a great befuddled dad in Freaks and Geeks. And, uh, you know, sure. but uh, but yeah, it's it's uh, it is an interesting thing where I think it's just like the name Maniac Mansion is a good alliterative name. And that's yeah. really just the sense you get is like, yeah, no one's played this game. Like, we just yeah. won't pay for the title. I don't think it was another thing that Lucas was looking at getting into. And famously, of course, uh, this was around probably the time that he was first talking about Star Wars TV series, which, of course, wouldn't end up happening for a lot, lot longer and then via different people. But, uh, yeah, this ran 66 episodes, which is no mean feat for any TV series. Uh, actually won a few awards and... Um, nominated for a few others so but yes it's all on youtube i i I did watch about half an episode and wasn't gripped but um (laughs) it's it's fascinating it's a family sitcom by eugene levy and joe flaherty how bad is that gonna be yeah exactly yeah uh finally from the forum we have gerard who says as a child i mostly encountered maniac mansion via oblique references in game hint magazines and shows i was always intrigued what was this game with tentacles and mummies and meteors with verbs like play rock music and put hamster in microwave rather than jump and shoot? I fell in love with LucasArts games in middle school, playing the stone cold classics included in the LucasArts archives pack Day of the Tentacle, Salmon Max and Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. Afterwards, I never looked back at the Sierra games. I'd spent my misbegotten youth dying in. My first experience with Maniac Mansion was naturally the emulated version running on the computer within Day of the Tentacle. Initially, I found it interesting, but it suffered by comparison to the game it was encased in, and I more or less set it aside. Several years later, I picked up the LucasArts Classics collection, a massive box of floppies containing everything 
from Maniac Mansion to the first Monkey Island. Dutifully playing through its contents, I found myself better able to appreciate Maniac Mansion as its own thing. It helped that the version there had a slightly higher resolution 16-bit colour graphic presentation. The ability to die or get stuck was a bit of a turn-off. Rough memories of those Sierra days. But the playful tone and sense of exploration were there, even in those early days of LucasArts. We also have a few three-word reviews. Follow us at Rince. Talk to Pierre, influential and dated. Uh, Bearfish Pie says, this scum stuck. And Cantonar's Ghost says, insane scum cutscenes. Thank you all. Uh, let us summarise. I think you've got a general gist. It was uh, as much a, a, an exploration of a fascinating piece of history as, as a game review, I suppose, this show. But uh, let's start with John anyway. Um. I really like this type of show where I've got something that I've always been kind of curious about that the the show has finally forced me to play. And I think I think it's kind of more interesting than the ones where I come on here and talk about, you know, one of my absolute all timers and just gush about it for two hours. So um, I'm always kind of I guess it sounds really silly and hyperbolic, but I'm always kind of grateful for the opportunity to like be forced to play something that I haven't <laughs> otherwise done. So and it's it's. Yeah, it's always a good learning experience with Jesse around as well, talking about these oh, yeah. old games. So, so I always feel like I've kind of um, like stolen some education or something when I come on the podcast with him, which is cool. Um, but yeah, I actually, I like this is a, a genre that I've always kind of sort of admired from a distance and sort of been a little bit, um, a little bit sort of intimidated by from a distance. And I have kind of dipped my toe in and actually really really enjoyed some of these games over the course of probably the last five or six years or revisiting ones that i really couldn't get my head around the first time so um actually doing maniac mansion finally and it not being a you know like a super recolored like redrawn the uh, scroll wheel with like four verbs instead of mm -hmm. the usual like it it's oh, cool that. to kind of have the the real traditional experience and it it really it reminded me a lot of um when I did play uh, Thimbleweed Park, because actually I was I was looking at some pictures of that again, and that has a very similar looking sort of those footballers' heads art style. Oh, it was absolutely deliberately like, a spiritual successor for sure. Yeah, it's it, it made me realise so much more about playing that game, and that was that was kind of a cool thing as well. And that also has the verbs on the bottom and everything. Like that game is is as much of like a Maniac Mansion sequel as it is anything else, and. Although mm. there is already the other Maniac Mansion sequel that we may or may not talk about, hopefully fairly soon. Yeah. Um, I think it would probably be a good one as well. So, um, yeah, like, yeah, I find these games, I, I, they're things that I would love to be able to just say, I'm going to take a couple of weeks off from doing everything else and I'm going to have the real organic experience. And then it actually comes to it and... I do it for half an hour and get incredibly frustrated and then turn to the turn to like looking at some hints or something and then that kind of ends up turning into looking at a more full guide when the hints aren't quite quite enough to also get me through so yeah like it I I still find it to be a very good experience of playing the game I always feel like I have cheated a little bit and maybe you know mm -hmm. not done it in quite the intended way but but it is it is one way to actually be able to get through a game like this that is is rather more obtuse than than I was otherwise expecting it to be. So I mean for for everything like that we've talked about, for all the positives and the negatives, 
I've really come away with like a much more positive or like overall more, much more positive than negative experience with it. And it is something that I do now need to go and look at some of the other, the other videos of the endings. And I'd, I'd love to get another playthrough at some point, maybe, maybe in another couple of years when I've forgotten about it a little bit. So mm. yeah, like enjoyed the game, enjoyed kind of the, like the history lesson aspect of it. So good all round, I think for me. Thanks, John. Yes, for me, it was about finally coming to a game that I'd seen and coveted many, many, many years ago. Um, but yes, in terms of playing it naturally and purely, uh, ain't no one got time for that. <laughs> like, uh, that's not true. There are people out there speed running this game. Obviously, they know it inside out and back to front now. And you can actually beat this game in a matter of minutes if you know the optimal path. Um, but you could equally spend many, many hours and wasted in inverted commas hours getting stuck and, and getting dead ended and whatever else. Unless, you know, you can be really, really diligent about keeping a lot of rolling saves. And actually the version within Day of the Tentacle Remastered is uh, is very good at keeping auto rolling saves as well. So I think it prevents you from getting too stuck in, in that fashion um, as well, which is obviously cool and yeah that i think that's uh that's a potentially a fun way to play it and i think there's even a couple of achievements or trophies tied to the there's one for just playing it uh within day of the tentacle remastered but there may may even be one or two that are tied to the actual gameplay of of the original maniac mansion yeah. I sorry just to cut in if i if i remember correctly i think you get one for vaporizing the hamster as well right as just okay playing it. so I, I definitely played a bit of it for that purpose sure Sure. So there's actually a, there's a whole load of uh, hamster based uh, microwave related puzzles, I think, in Day of the Tentacle, because obviously it became a bit of a thing. But yes, uh, that does sound right. So so there's a kind of there's a that if you care about trophies or achievements, there's a little extra motivation to have a little poke at this game. Um, it won't necessarily kind of tickle your nostalgia gland in the way that it does for me in that kind of way that i yeah this game that i looked at in, and lusted after in screenshots as a fan of lucasarts lucasfilm games stuff back in 1987 a game that i wasn't able to play because i didn't have a, a commodore 64 let alone a disc drive um i finally got to play it now albeit in a yeah in a very cheaty way but um but i still had fun with it um and i think you know for a game that you can pick up either free as part of another game or just for a quid or two off good old games. I think that's uh, that's as much as you can ask. And yeah, it's the game that invented, arguably invented cutscenes in video games. So if for nothing else, as well as the point and click adventure uh, kind of burgeoning uh, or, or improving or making that genre a thing, a popular thing, um, inventing cutscenes in games, love them or hate them, this is where it all began. So an absolutely essential piece of history within gaming. Um, but yeah, you don't necessarily need to try to puzzle it out yourself. Jesse. Yeah. In that, uh, ad I had mentioned earlier, uh, the, the, um, caption under the first uh, picture of the game says in maniac mansion, trademark, a movie style quote unquote <laughs> cut dash scene quickly establishes the characters' personalities. So they were actually using it uh in their in their ads as their their uh great new innovation. Of course in the in the caption on the picture below it says just three quote unquote clicks and you'll send Zach McCracken over to the pawn shop to uh <laughs> so 
you know, a lot of a lot of scary terminology here. Um, I mean, I, I feel like I've kind of just kept picking on this. And, and the thing is, is right. I, I, I don't have a nostalgic affection for this. Uh, and coming to it now as an adventure game in 1987, there's a lot of good adventure games in 1987 that I would, I would, you know, in, that I enjoy playing more than this. The Fool's mm. Errand, Pirates, uh, Cinemaware game or two, uh, you know, it, I, uh, Plundered Hearts, um, there's another Infocom game that year, I kinda, uh, Hollywood Hijinks, like, just oh, in yeah. terms of even in adventure games where things are in a maturity of a medium form, like Plundered Hearts is the end of the text advent, commercial text adventure in a way, right? And it's a, mm. uh, it's a polished kind of game, and it's ambitious, but in a very different way. Um, whereas this is a fascinating first game by a great game designer where they are just biting off more than they can chew and and you see what happens and uh, you know how much fun is that i don't know right is this one where like when we did trinity and fool's errand i cheated eventually but i wasn't starting out within again like the first half hour just being like yeah i know this has a lot of dead ends and this is you know kind of rough so let's just uh um, walk through this essentially and because it's not you know a game about game feel or or micro strategies or anything you know the line between that and just watching a walkthrough is blurry um i'm glad i did you know i this is a game i've already talked about and i certainly feel like i know more about it now yeah um but i and it, it, there is just i've never loved watching a person walk across a room um it's just you know not even that that, special person i mean specific people sure uh barishnikov (laughs) you know uh crosby fred astaire um but yeah but there is right as as just even compared to the text adventures that are contemporaneous i don't think it's yet ahead of them in any way right whereas when you hit loom in monkey island um I think you can make that argument. Uh, mm. So, mm. but yeah. And, and it's, you know, uh, mainly if I were to come back to this, it would be in the context of writing about this attempt at the, at the sort of clockwork puzzle game and, and, it, you know, the, the, the many uh, tries and varying levels of success at, at taking a bite at this. Uh, and uh, you know, this is, this is no last express, uh, or even I think suspended, but it is it is fascinating in that context, um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. Just in the it, it's a game that anyone who is listening to this should certainly go back to and at least watch a walkthrough of because I think you will get a lot out of it and look at habitat and you mm. know contextualize it essentially. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Jesse. So there we have it, Maniac Mansion. As always, no guarantees or promises, but we may come back to the series with Day of the Tentacle or we may look at some other adventures or point-and-click adventures in future. As I always say, apologetically, we only cover 50 games a year and there are about 5 million video games, I believe. So uh, don't hold your breath, but uh, but we will see. I know Jesse would love to cover Loom and I've never played that one. So we shall see what the future will bring. In the meantime, it just remains for me, Leon, to thank Jesse, John, Editor Jay, as well as our correspondents, and of course, you for listening 
Next time, in issue 535, Kane and Rince accepts no responsibility for RSI or carpal tunnel syndrome. Universal paperclips.